Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 337, The Favourite Favourite. There is a magnificent palace in Northamptonshire called Apethorpe. It's owned by English Heritage and viewing is by appointment only on specific dates. It is maintained, obviously to a degree, but not in quite the National Trust way, that is to say, it's not filled with furniture and all that. It's quite empty and somehow all the more magnificent for that. Many moons ago, the aged M and I went there and marvelled. Mouths open, a little dribble at the corner of each mouth. Northamptonshire, it must be said, is a surprisingly underrated county full of wonders. Anyway, if you happen to be near Apethorpe, do try to get in, but make sure you've booked beforehand, of course. And you can also see the Church Conservation Trust Church at Blatherwick too, and round it all off with visiting Fotheringhay, the Abbey, shed tears over the blood of Mary Queen of Scots, and then polish it all off with a good pub lunch and a pint at the jockey. A grand day out, whether or not you're wearing the right trousers. Apethorpe was acquired from the crown by one of the grandees of Elizabethan England, Sir Walter Mildmay. The grandees of Elizabethan England were much addicted to building magnificent country houses to attract the monarch to a visit, which is a bit odd because it could ruin you if she did. But such was the genesis of Apethorpe. And Mildmay was indeed graced with the royal presence multiple times, and he was indeed nearly ruined by the experience. Anyway, I'm getting deja vu a bit, as though I've already told you all of this, so let me move on. One reason why Apethorpe was so successful in attracting royal visitors was because it was in pretty good striking distance of London, and good for hunting to boot, so ideal for a summer progress. Obviously, the royals did not like the prospect of going anywhere north of the River Trent, since that would take you into the uh, north of England, where you might meet people called Crowther or something hideous, and that would never, never do. Although for all his manifold sins, Henry VIII did so progress, and James also, of course, although only on a trip to and from Scotland. Anyway, I warble. Get on with it, man. In 1614, James was on a royal progress, and in August he tipped up at Antony Mildmay's gaff, the Mildmay incumbent at the time. Now don't imagine for a moment, if you were so tempted, that the royal progress was a kind of camping trip in the country, the sort of precursor of the great British summer holiday of which we were the recipients in the 70s, stuck in a caravan on the coast, with liberal usage of the words bracing and 
I'm sure it'll blow itself out before long. Oh, dearie me, no. Entertainment was on a grand scale between the hunting outings, and as you know, James was a king who adored hunting more than life itself. So, Antony had determined to put his very best foot forward, and since he knew the king and his court, encouraged by the enthusiasm and patronage of the queen, revelled in the mask, he had employed one of the masters of that art to lay on a bit of a do, a bit of a knees up, that being Ben Jonson, the playwright, and according to Britannica, England's second most important playwright after that other bloke. I must do a podcast or shedcast on all these Elizabethan and Jacobean dramatists one day. They have quite a life. Ben was a bricklayer and a soldier in the wars in the Low Countries before becoming a dramatist who played with the religion, converting to Catholicism, later converting back, ostentatiously downing a complete chalice of wine at communion when he did so. Anyway, he created a long list of masks as well as plays and one of these was laid on by Mild Maid to entertain James between heading out into the countryside to murder small furry animals. While enjoying the entertainments at Apethorpe, James's eye fell upon a beautiful young man. Lovely thing he was, just 21, full of vigour and the health of youth, charming, graceful, blooming. Excellent calf definition. Probably, though I fear I'm running away with myself. Anyway, James was very much impressed and was introduced to this fresh young Adonis. His name turned out to be George, George Villiers. It's maybe a bit surprising that George was at the royal court at all, given that he came from a family that was not particularly grand. But I guess that was the advantage of the royal progress. More local families could get to see their king. George was son of George Villiers and his second wife, Mary Beaumont. And it is Mary, really, who was the architect of her son's success, if that would be the right word, celebrity, shall we say. George was born in 1592, and his father died in 1606 when he was but 14. Mary fell on hard times for a while before she remarried, but made sure she developed her son's talents. These were not in scholarship, it turns out, though he seemed to remember his schoolmaster, Anthony Cade, with great affection, at the crucible of his education, the vicarage schoolhouse at Bilsden. We are talking here, by the way, of one of Leicestershire's most famous sons, though some way behind David Gower, Gary Lineker and Dean Richards, of course. Anyway, Mary made sure her lad was well-schooled in skills that would stand him in good stead in his chosen future career, namely dancing, fencing and riding. Mary was ambitious for her son. She was a formidable character, never very popular later at court, though she was apparently very attractive, and one writer referred to her as a beautiful and provident mother. But she didn't hold back. She spoke her mind, never really acquired the courtier's skill of tact and oil. Her bond with her son was very close. George Villiers' background and roots seem to have been important to him, which is an attractive attribute, I'm sure you'll agree. When he had the wherewithal, he remembered Anthony Cade, his old schoolteacher, and presented him to James I, which must have been quite a thing for a backwoodsman from the heart of rural England. He also secured a magnificent appointment for him, which Anthony was far too humble to accept, much preferring the quiet life instead. 
Similarly, George talked affectionately about his youth with his mother, when I did nothing else but unreasonably and frowardly wrangle, and wrote to her with gratitude for the more than ordinary natural love of a mother which you have ever borne me. To his mother, he would always be the same naughty boy, George Villiers. Anyway, enough. Mary married again to Thomas Compton. Thomas Compton was well-connected, as they say. Thomas's brother William would be a future Earl of Northampton. George was thus able to travel for a couple of years to France to acquire more refinements, for, as a second son of a second wife, George would need his refinements to avoid falling on his own hard times. But when he arrived at court, his entire fortune was 50 quid a year. But, through his stepfather, in 1611, George met one Sir James Graham, who would be his mentor. As an aside, someone once tried to take me through the theory of the rules that you need to stick to when writing a fantasy novel, which sounded quite convincing. So, the hero has to be weak and impoverished or disadvantaged in some way, since having a hero from a place like, I don't know, Eton, obviously doesn't sound much like of a challenge or a great story. Said hero then needs to acquire a protector and mentor that will help them through the dangers of their early years. Well, that's what I remember anyway. Just as Robert Carr had his Thomas Overbury to mentor him at court, James Graham would serve that function for our fantasy hero George Villiers. Graham was a court insider, one of the gentlemen of the King's Privy Chamber, and it was probably he that got George in front of the King's lascivious eyes again, and he that brought him to court at London, and quickly too. And we know this, because just four weeks after Apethorpe, one Lord Fenton brought his cousins up to date with the news from court, writing, I think your lordship has heard before this time of a youth. His name is Villiers, a Northamptonshire man. He begins to be in favour with his majesty. Well, the existing favourite, Somerset, who was still the man of the moment in 1614, knew a rival when he saw one and reacted with furious jealousy, much to James's irritation, actually. But he was able to use his influence to prevent George getting gainful employment at court. It was a bad period for George. He was spotted at the races in Cambridge in a torn and split old black jacket. Shocking stuff. And it was reported on the grapevine that when he was at court, he could not get a room at the inn to lodge in, and therefore was glad to lie in a trundle bed in a gentleman's chamber. However, it was not enough for Somerset to get him out of the king's presence. The king had a quiet word in James Graham's shell-like and told him to educate the lad in the ways of the court. And then George found himself another patron from the Patriot faction, the Earl of Pembroke and George Abbott, the Archbishop of Canterbury, very powerful men. And they had the wherewithal to wrangle the lad a job right under Somerset's nose as a cup-bearer to the king, just like the pharaoh's cup-bearer Joseph found in prison in the musical, and that book was called, uh, oh yeah, The Bible. James's cup-bearer's conversation impressed him, though I'm slightly surprised he could hear what he was saying over the grinding of Somerset's teeth doesn't necessarily seem, from what I can tell, to be only George's mind, though, that James was impressed with, manufacturing a mask for the occasion expressly of having George act in it 
so that James could feast his eyes on the lad. Pembroke and Abbott now had the bit between their teeth. George Villiers had become a stalking horse to bring down Somerset, though unbeknownst to them at the time, Somerset and his countess would prove more than competent at doing that all on their own, as you are already aware, what with enemas and apothecary boys and all that. Anyway, the Patriots faction engineered a little scene, enlisting the support of the Queen to do so to get George Villiers recognised properly by the King. So, there we are. Picture the scene. It's St George's Day, 1615, and James has announced to his wife that he shall call on her, together with their second son, Charles. I imagine this is a situation familiar to all of you, that you have frequently announced to members of your family that you shall be calling on them. I know I do, and Jane is grateful for the advance warning. Anne duly had everything ready for their arrival, with Buckingham kept in reserve at a discreet distance for the right moment. And at just the right moment, she asked the young buck to pass her his rapier, and then knelt before her hub and asked him to bestow the office of gentleman of the bedchamber on her protégé. How could any husband refuse such a reasonable request? Of course, James happily agreed. Anyway, James agreed with the gossip going round about Villiers anyway by that stage. One courtier had described him as everything in him full of delicacy and handsome features. Yea, his hands and face seemed to me to be especially effeminate and curious. Another as the handsomest-bodied man of England, his limbs so well compacted and his conversation so pleasing and of so sweet a disposition. So, bearing this in mind as he gazed on the fine young man, James gave George Villiers a pension of £1,000. Bayek, here is another of those examples of the king's general lack of feck. 1000 quid. Enough to maintain the station of an earl to a young whippersnapper from Leicester. I looked it up on the National Archives currency converter. That's the equivalent of 134,000 quid a year or 20,000 days of skilled labourers' time or something like 500 cows. Just like that. Handsomest bodied man in England, indeed. Obviously, as a gent of the bedchamber, that handsome body would be ever closer to the king's own body, indeed sharing a bed with it at Farnham Castle later in the same year. Now, sharing beds in the 17th century was a common enough thing, so that's not evidence of sex and all that, but still, intimate or what. By 1616, the main obstacle to the rise of Pembroke and Abbott's protégé had been removed. Somerset had been buried by the Overbury scandal, and there was nothing in the way of George Villiers' rise, which was dizzying. I mean, like the most dramatic fairground ride. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin with the goodies distributed. January 1616, Master of the King's Horse. Quite interesting how all this sort of stuff worked. So there was actually a current incumbent of the post of Master of the King's Horse. His name was the Earl of Worcester. And the Earl of Worcester didn't want to give the job of Master of the Horse up. So James, who didn't want to call us a cause eruption, James oiled the wheels, as it were, by making Worcester the Keeper of the Seal instead and giving him a pension of 
1,500 quid. I have three observations. One, Villiers was in high favour. This was a job that Somerset had failed to procure for himself. Second, we are clearly, were we in any doubt, not in a structured process of matching skills to roles here. The word meritocracy had but four letters in the early modern world. And third, 1,500 quid just to give his playmate a job, which paid a salary of 66 quid. No wonder James and his nation were destitute. I'm sorry about this, I was going to give you a quick list, but I digress again, because it's fascinating to see how the system worked. Although George received a salary of but £66 a year to be master of the horse, scarcely financial success, I think you'll agree, although he'd already had the thousand quid, of course, the job also brought with it some privileges worth rather more than 60 quid. This came in the form of diets. So George was given 16 meals a day free at the king's board. This meant he could feed himself, his servants and his chumps for free. Or he could commute it for money payments instead. And spookily, a diet of 16 diets a day was worth, you guessed it, 1,500 quid a year. Plus, he also got free stabling. So, all in all, it was worth quite a bit. But surely, no way to run a country. Also, George had a fun time shopping for Italian and Spanish horses for the king because apparently English stock wasn't up to much. Fun times. Anyway, next goody, April 1616, appointed to the Order of the Garter. So quickly, Burley would have laid eggs. But then Burley's boss, Queen Elizabeth, was notoriously as mean as mouse shit. George was appointed to Garterdom at the same time as the Earl of Rutland of the Manners family, of whom more at some future point. Earl of Rutland, Manners family. Put it in the diary. August 1616, after the ceremony, George Villiers started seriously coming into the money. He was created Baron Wadden and given Lord Grey of Wilton's lands in Buckinghamshire, which were worth 1,500 quid, again a little spookily. Poor old Lord Grey had been convicted of treason in the by-plot and confined to the Tower, where he also got into further trouble by having a bit of nookie with one of Lady Arabella Stuart's household, before dying in the tower. Sick transit and all that. However, the title of Baron Wadden wasn't considered anything like grand enough for a royal favourite, so straightway Jimmy also made him Viscount Villiers, which, true enough, does sound much better than Baron Wadden, about which there is something vaguely unclean. Not sure why. Anyway, this led to a further problem, because 1,566 a year plus 16 diets wasn't enough for the dignity of a Viscount, apparently. Just in case you are interested, Duke is at the top, then Marquis, then Earl, then Viscount, then Baron, then Baronet, bringing up the rear. So, James had a bunch of land bestowed upon Viscount Villiers worth about 30,000 quid. I mean, the boat had officially come in, that is, Four million squid in today's spondulicase. There was more than a little fishy on the Villiers' little dishy when his boat came in. Little old cultural reference there for those of an advanced age. Anyway, everyone around the little dishy of state patronage were now looking a little green around the gills 
which gives me a chance to introduce a new character onto our stage, one Lionel Cranfield. Big hand, ladies and gentlemen. Lionel Cranfield. Now, Lionel was not a noble. Lionel Cranfield was a London merchant from a merchant family in the rag trade. He was, though, as they say, a canny lad, around 40 by this time after a successful career as a merchant and financier. He'd branched out from selling curses in Italy, that's a material, by the way, to playing the Jacobean finance game, lending money to asset-rich, cash-poor nobles, buying up farms, by which I mean monopolies, or the right to raise rent from crown lands for an agreed fee rather than a sort of barn. It's that world of financial goings-on that very often looks more than a little dodgy to us ordinary mortals, and obviously sometimes is. Lionel Cranfield knew where the bodies were buried. He was a fully paid-up member of London society, and interestingly may well have been part of a drinking and dining society called the... Cyreniacal Fraternity, which met at the Mitre Tavern, and may have overlapped with Ben Jonson's chums at the Mermaid Tavern, including the likes of Inigo Jones and John Donne and other luminaries. Now, after the addled Parliament, as you all know, the royal government was thoroughly rattled, refusing to call any more of those pesky parliaments that were so, well, rude, and so looked for other ways to make the Crown some income. And who better to ask how to catch a pheasant than a poacher? And so the Howard faction had brought Cranfield into government in 1613 to show them how they could sweat the royal assets and condemn the prospect of public consultation through Parliament to the outer darkness where it belonged. And once in, Cranfield became part of the newly forming Villiers faction. And he warned his partner Villiers that the favours of princes are looked on with many envious eyes. That basically he'd been noticed by the more established courtiers and it was causing much envy. Not that Villiers was a man to be worried by such trifles. There are three things that matter to a king's favourite and those three things are in order of descending importance. The king, the king and finally the king. For James, Villiers was now his Steeny, short for Stephen, because James declared that his friend was just like St Stephen, and as everyone knew, everyone who saw St Stephen's face saw the face of an angel. The biblical allusions went even further. James declared to his privy council that he loved Buckingham more than any other man, since, just as Christ had his John so he had his George. The rise to glory, favour and power did not stop there. By February 1617, Steeny was made Earl of Buckingham and appointed to the Privy Council. The 25-year-old from Bring, the protégé of a faction, was now himself the faction. The people had become the master. We are now firmly in the age of Buckingham, whose influence will extend over all for the next 10 years or so, and over two kings. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, that's all very fun. But look, we probably need to get some proper work done, you and I. You know, grindstone history. So let's get loin girding and put the nose to the whirly stone thing. Ready? Let's talk about royal finances, given that I have introduced Cranfield into the discussion. Now, when the adult parliament had diddled, the royal debt stood at a stonking 680,000 quid. I have mentioned a few of the wizard wheezes in which Julius Caesar and the Howard faction indulged to keep the parliamentary wolf from the king's door, selling baronetcies, the raising of a benevolence, loans, a few quid from the church. But all of this is a few quid from the back of the sofa sort of stuff, not a permanent solution at which Salisbury had been aiming in the great contract. And it got harder as he went on. So the City of London, for example, mainstay of the monarchy for centuries for forced loans and euphemistically entitled gifts, was closed now to James. Because first he stopped paying the interest on his loans from them, then he stopped paying the principal altogether. So not going to do well on a credit score app any time soon, and therefore London was not going to be keen to make any more generous gifts either. James's loyal servants really did leave no stone unturned. One of them involved levying fines on buildings made within seven miles of London in contravention of some obscure proclamation of 1603. The sweaty desperation of it all comes down across the centuries. Worse, there were some saying, look, give it up, old chap, don't you know? Just make concessions on those customs impositions everyone got so cross about and call a jolly old parliament. Not on your nelly, replied the grim king. Still the debt rose, remorselessly, £726,000. And then, from the same stable as the king's new poacher, Cranfield, came a business scheme to raise a few quid. William Cocaine was an alderman with long contact with James, probably since 1606, and he became a trusted financial adviser to him. Cocaine was a man on the up, sheriff of London, alderman, soon to be mayor of London, a major figure in London's plantations in Ireland, seeing to the defences of Londonderry. He'd financed William Baffin's expedition to Greenland in 1612 as well. Cocaine was a clothier, and Cocaine had a pet project the sort of thing he probably bored people with interminably over pine a pint, that sort of thing. It annoyed cocaine that despite the glory of England's wool trade and growing cloth trade, the vast balance of the value added in the production of cloth was taken not by England and its production of raw, undyed broadcloths. It was taken by those pesky Dutch who did all the dyeing and finishing and cloth production and clothes production, and as a result, 
wandered around with all those broigles and such like in their front rooms, while Cocaine could barely rise to pinning up his four-year-old daughter's primary school portraits. So he had a plan. He reckoned that he had the Dutch merchants over a barrel, actually, because, look, they were dependent on English broadcloths, and if he bought up all those broadcloths and had them dyed and finished in England, he could sell them all over Europe and the Dutch would be stymied. As it happens, England was already having a deal of success with lighter fabrics and clothes, referred to in history books as the new draperies, the sort of thing that Cranfield had spent his early career selling into Italy, curses and so on. So, by an aggressive trade strategy of forbidding the export of English broadcloths, all that lovely production would be switched to honest English workers. All the sales and money would be switched to slightly less honest English merchants, and extra customs revenue would flow into the coffers of the distinctly dodgy King of Great Britain, an extra 47,000 quid in customs revenue, my lud. Well, Cocaine had never got anywhere with this project. My dad once told me that if a financial project looks too good to be true, then do you know what? It probably is. Maybe one of the reasons we look like inheriting the earth rather than blasting off to the stars, but as it happens, Robert Cecil would have agreed with my dad. And anyway, the company of merchant adventurers who controlled the trading monopoly with Flanders always nixed the idea. It wouldn't work, they said. The Dutch were way too powerful. Best to build up this new draperies market segment. In segmentation and market domination lies profit, not in trade wars. With Salisbury gone, with James desperate for a few quid to last him to the end of the week, Cocaine saw his chance and he pitched. Now look, we are not playing around here. The stakes were enormous. And if this project was to fly, the pothole that was the merchant adventurers would have to be removed from the runway. The lure of financial independence and Cocaine's golden tongue talked the king round in a remarkable series of steps. James suppressed the merchant adventurers and immediately granted a charter instead to the new merchant adventurers company, whose governor would be, hmm, let me think now, the alderman of Farringdon's a good man, sir. Oh, William Cocaine, you say. Good shout. Cocaine, spookily, was joined on the board by many members of his own company, the Eastlands Company. Thus, Cocaine looked to be a double winner. James issued a proclamation prohibiting the export of all unfinished cloth, and the game was afoot. Well, for a while in 1616, William Cocaine was riding high. Cocaine knew that he had to keep his king on his side, and James now that he'd thrown the book at the thing, desperately wanted to believe in his financial wizard and that all this would work out. But the snake kept slithering into the Garden of Eden that they'd created with whisperings of evil knowledge and, you know, truth. The new company did not have enough money and resource to buy sufficient quantities of cloth. So weavers in Wiltshire and Gloucester suddenly had no one to sell their cloth to, their income fell, and in despair they rioted. Cocaine kept the king looking his way, away from all these inconvenient truths. At the height of it all, in June 1616, he persuaded the king to come round to his gaff, the modestly named Cocaine House, and entertained him right royally, 
presenting a bill later to the New Adventurers Company for their ENTS budget of 3,000 quid. That, my friend, is equivalent to £400,000 in today's spondulikes. That is a very grand day out. Very grand indeed. Wallace would be shocked and Gromit amazed. Nor did the king and his lad go away empty-handed from the hoolie. Goodie bags were provided, a gold basin and £1,000 for the king, £500 for Prince Charles. However, while Cocaine was keeping the king's attention on him, the Dutch were playing hardball and giving a fine demonstration on how to deploy raw commercial power and channel dominance. They banned the import of English cloth, and within a year it was as plain as a pipe staff that as far as parrots were concerned, this one had dropped off its perch, good and proper. No one was able to buy English cloth, the finances of the new company were a mess, weavers were going hungry, trade was being hammered. So eventually James recognised defeat, graciously allowed the old Merchant Adventures Company to buy back their privileges for mm, 50,000 quid, and ended the trade war by repealing the ban on exporting undyed cloth. So James came out of it fine, I suppose. Cocaine's name was mud for a while, but by 1620 he was back entertaining the King and Prince as Mayor of London. The only losers here were the ordinary weavers who'd lost their job and suffered years of recession. Twas ever thus, I guess, as Sam sang, still the same old story. Money, worried James. Money's too tight to mention. Money, 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 money. Don't make me call Parliament, Steenie. Well, one option since now he'd tried selling baronetcies like they were going out of fashion and selling cloth and flogging future revenues to the financial farmers what was left in the silver cupboard he'd have to sell his son maybe charles who was now 16 and of marriageable age and might be worth a few quid for his wife's dowry if flogged effectively on the open market i jest of course but it has to be said that a dowry was not the least of the considerations involved in the arrangement of the prince's marriage the trouble was that the idea of a match with a Spanish monarch was attractive financially, dynastically and diplomatically, but religiously a tough call. The French would be a better match, maybe, but they were dragging their feet and not offering a dowry anywhere near as high as Spain's. Darn! Maybe it must be Parliament. And then, at the eleventh hour, enter the Dutch you know those two towns of ours that Elizabeth took as surety for all the loans and armies you sent us, Brill and Flushing? Well, we'd like to buy them back now, if that's OK. This was indeed most acceptable to our hero. He'd make 250,000 quid, enough to keep the parliamentary wolf from the door, and he'd save £26,000 a year on garrisoning costs into the bargain. Fair enough, it was half what the Dutch actually owed, but the deal was done and relief gained for a while. Still, the longer-term situation remained desperado, so desperate that when Villiers came to James with the name of Walter Raleigh on his sweet lips, James, remarkably, was prepared to listen. This is curious. James did not like Walter Raleigh, because James remained anything but a fan of Walter Raleigh, as far as he was concerned, with some justice, Raleigh had indeed been involved in a plot against him and should have been executed. But although the legal sleight of hand was that Raleigh was dead at law, mercy had stayed James's hand from actually cutting his head off. 
Raleigh had been confined to the Tower in 1603 and been there ever since. Now, I confess to having something of a blind spot about Raleigh, which is wrong of me, given the extraordinary variety and adventure of his life. Explorer, coloniser, courtier, lover, and now, in the Tower, man of letters and apothecary. The thing is, being a noble and courtier meant a rather different experience to Hoi Polloi cooling their heels in the fleet. Raleigh had a bit of space and freedom in the Tower. He had access to a garden where he grew flowers and invented medicines, including his great cordial, which had ingredients of some complexity and acquired some notoriety, although presumably still, you know, useless. His wife, and seemingly the love of his life, Bess Throgmorton, was able to visit him, and indeed their last child, Carew, seems to have been conceived and christened in the Tower. And then there was his magnus opus, The History of the World, which was published while he was in the Chokey. It would be massively popular in the 17th century. It would be reprinted multiple times. But it did not do Walter any favours with the man whose favours he very much needed, the king. The trouble was, with said Magnus Hopper's History of the World, that it was unduly lippy as far as kings were concerned. Raleigh's thesis was that God intervenes in man's affairs to punish kings who abuse their power. Also, James suspected that the portrait of King Ninius, who rules right after a famous and successful queen, was in fact a poppet James himself. Raleigh described Ninius as a man esteemed no man of war at all, but altogether feminine and subjected to ease and delicacy. So, James was no more inclined to release Raleigh than he'd ever been. But Walter had an ace in the hole. He claimed to know where there was money, lots and lots of money, gold. Also, he'd actually become something of a rather popular national treasure after the trial. From being seen once as a rather reviled, vainglorious failure, his dignified and defiant conduct at the trial had endeared him. And now he was also a memory of a golden and glorious and vanished Elizabethan age. Now, Buckingham came to have a chat with James, and he spoke on Raleigh's behalf. He related Raleigh's claims that in Guyana, on the northern coast of South America, was to be found the source of El Dorado, a mine, a gold mine, to end all gold mines, a mountain of wealth. So James hoped two birds would be slain by the stone of mercy, money and popularity. What's not to like? Silly not to. Entirely coincidentally, by the way, Buckingham received a cash gift of 1,500 quid from Raleigh. Entirely coincidental, obviously. A deal was therefore struck. Raleigh would fit out an expedition to Guyana, there to find the man of gold, El Dorado, and make his king financially independent for life. Raleigh would be conditionally released, although until he was actually successful in this aim, he would remain legally a dead man walking. And so the dead man walked out onto the streets of London in March 1616. Best Raleigh got to work to raise the £30,000 necessary to run the expedition to Guyana, she sold property, called in loans, mortgaged her own future. The anti-Spanish patriot faction at court, Pembroke, Abbott and Arundel, stood surety for this last throw of the dice. The Spanish ambassador, meanwhile, was livid. Said ambassador was a chap called Sarmiento de Acuna 
Diego, the Count of Gondomar. For ease and comfort of any Spanish ears listening, we'll just call him Gondomar from now on. He dished the dirt and he could dish no more, proving that Walt had already been to Guyana and he'd found Nout anyway, and that the Spanish owned the area, please note, and the idea of a mine was just a joke. James, of course, didn't want to hear, but he agreed to make Raleigh promise to offer no violence to any Spaniard, Spanish possession, not so much as a nose-thumbing at anyone who thought they might once have seen a Spaniard's grandmother's servant crossing the road on a summer's evening. Nothing. Gondomar was sceptical but could do no more. He not unreasonably pointed out that for a man who sailed therefore in peace, he was rocking an awful lot of military hardware in his fleet. This, of course, was the Elizabethan privateering gambit revived. Succeed and cover me with gold, and who cares who said what to whom? This is no time to be picky. Fail, and you have seriously transduced your honour and that of your monarch, you bad, bad man. A story did the rounds at the time about a conversation between Francis Bacon and Raleigh while walking in the gardens at Gray's Inn. Raleigh boasted that he would capture the Spanish treasure fleet if he failed to find gold on the Orinoco River. Bacon was shocked, but that would be piracy. Ha ha ha, fluttered Raleigh. Who ever heard of men being pirates when they win millions? Which is a fair point, of course. Real politique. On the 19th of June, 1617, the fleet of 12 had assembled at Plymouth. The mayor of Plymouth hired a drummer boy and the last Elizabethan adventure boarded the destiny to sail for God, gold and glory. The ships were cheered, the harbour cleared and merrily did they drop below the hill, below the kirk, below the lighthouse top. And we shall hear what happens next time. Until then, gentle listeners, I hope your life is full of joy and delight. Thank you for listening to my podcast and good luck. <laughs>